the Shark Chat Podcast, stories that connect. Hello, and welcome back to the Shy Chat Podcast. This is your host, Peter Raimholt, and I'm happy to be with you again. With our new virtual way of working, I'm currently recording in my home office, which happens to share a wall with the neighbor's restless toddler. Sorry in advance for any background noise you may hear. Although it is not the KPMG Story Lab recording studio in 68, I'm happy to be safe and healthy during this time, and I hope you and your family are doing well. In my newfound studio, I recently had the opportunity to virtually sit down with Eric Haas, an associate director on our advisory ops team in Chicago. We discussed his unique path to joining KPMG, which includes working on Wall Street during 9-11 and subsequent tours to Iraq and Afghanistan as part of the Army. Eric details stories from his six years of active duty, where he earned two Purple Hearts and two Bronze Star Medals. In addition, Eric shares how his experiences in the Army have helped him at KPMG including the opening of the KPMG Boost Performance Center, an onshore delivery center in Lake, Lake Nona, Florida. Hello, KPMG, and welcome to another episode of the Shy Chat Podcast. Today, I have Eric Haas with me. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. How's everything going, Eric? I know this is an interesting time in, in the quarantine, the time of COVID-19. Yeah, you know, I can't complain. Um, you know, we're we're sort of rolling with the punches. Um, you know, as we we sort of were talking about earlier before we went on air, just uh, getting to spend some quality time with the family. Um, we're not uh, driving each other crazy quite yet, and just uh, actually looking forward to getting outdoors when the weather finally gets nice. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like it's good to have that silver lining of being able to spend some quality time with family and kind of enjoying some of the, the downtime and that they maybe wouldn't normally get. Right. Um, well, yeah, let's let's quickly jump into your story. Uh, we interview some interesting people on this podcast, but your background is one of the most interesting I've seen. Uh, do you want to start about, uh, talk about how you maybe got to KBMG, but before maybe how you grew up and a little bit about your own background? Sure, yeah. So, you know, like one of the toughest questions I sometimes get is like, you know, where are you from? It's sort of hard for me to answer that just because I sort of bounced around throughout my childhood and even up to until now. So uh, I was born in Oslo, Norway. My my father is a uh, or was uh, is a retired uh, Norwegian career diplomat, and uh, you know we sort of his job took us all over the the world from Norway to Indonesia, where my mom happens to be from. Uh, to Paris, France, to Washington, D.C., back to Norway, and then to New York. And, you know, I was in New York when 9-11 happened. Obviously, it had a pretty big impact on me. And, you know, it's, if I was to sort of, uh, you know, draw some of the feelings that I've got sort of now, and, like, the only thing I can really compare to is this sort of, like, how it was, like, in the week or two after after the attacks when we could sort of still smell, like, the World Trade Center burning for out until December even, and there was all that anxiety around the um, uh, anthrax attacks and all that. But uh, yeah, I was in New York, and uh, and you know I'd always sort of had a interest in military service. Um, yeah. And you know the economy was slowing down after 9/11, and you know I sort of said to myself at one point, you know you're not you're not getting any younger, and like if you're going to go in, like now's the time to do it. So you know I did that. I actually went down to the Times Square recruiting station because I thought that would be cool, um, and enlisted there. 
Um, you know, it's 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 kind of fun because I've you know been back to New York, you know, with my wife just like on a, on a like on a trip, and like, hey, that's where I joined the army, and yeah, I uh, joined up the happened to to swear in to to the army on September 11th, to, uh, 2002. Uh, not by design; it was just sort of how uh, happened to be the day that that I was at the at the pro in processing station, and then about a month later, I was in Fort Benning, Georgia, going through basic training and. Finished that up while I was in basic training. Actually, the the Iraq invasion was starting to happen, and they actually oh were looking for volunteers to actually leave basic training early to um, to you know go to the war. Uh, and I did try to volunteer because you know at, at that time it was like you know we I, we were it's it's sort of a funny thing to think back on, but I remember myself and a lot of the other soldiers were like you know we're gonna miss the war. We actually you know it was just you know that was what we signed up for. Uh, lo and behold, uh, that didn't really be, <laughs> that wasn't really a big problem after all. Um, no. So I was not picked to volunteer to go early, but I graduated and was immediately signed to a unit in Germany. And when I got to Germany, uh, all the soldiers were already wearing instead of wearing green, they were wearing desert tan because they were going to 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 the sandbox, as we like to call it. And I think I was in Germany for maybe two and a half weeks before I was found myself in the Kuwaiti desert. So when you were in New York um, at 9-11, at, at were you in lower Manhattan? Were you near the attacks? <laughs> A funny story. I was actually um, at the University Club on Fifth Avenue. It was uh, at some sort of like conference, I think talking about like business in China. Mm -hmm. And uh, my coworker who's uh, from Japan was with me and he kept fiddling with his phone and I was like can you put that thing away and he's like well my, my girlfriend's texting me from Japan and like a plane crashed into the World Trade Center and I was like like that happened in the 70s because like, I think you know like a yeah. you know a little prop plane had crashed into the World Trade Center by accident back in the 70s or 80s and I was like just put your phone away and you know we, en we ended up finishing up the conference and I remember we were walking back to our office which was in Midtown and the you know, sirens like were going just constantly and, they, and I remember seeing a pickup truck full of firefighters riding in the back you know not even a fire truck wow. and I, that was when it sort of hit me that like wait something's wrong and I remember getting to my building and I was in the in in the elevator going up to my office and one of the maintenance guys was in there and he was talking to another maintenance guy and he says yeah they both towers went down and I was like what and uh, that's when it sort of hit me and, you know, then, you know, we got into our office and, like, you know, there's all sorts of commotion and, you know, our clients are calling us from, like, Europe and just, like, you guys okay? And, um, you know, I, you know, our cell phones stopped working because, like, there's too many people on the network. And then, um, you know, it was starting to sink in. I remember, like, maybe an hour or two later, you started to see the people from lower Manhattan who just, you know, given up and were walking home. And sure. some of them were covered in soot. You know, and that was like, wow. Um, so I remember just, yeah, we just sort of, I, I decided to just sort of wait things out because I lived out in Queens, just, you know, mm -hmm. for things to calm down. And I think I didn't yeah. head home in, until like 8 p.m. just to, uh, when, you know, it just got a little bit calmer and there weren't as many people out and about. I mean, that's just absolutely surreal. Um, yeah. <laughs> so then, so you're living in New York. You live through this. You're working a, a finance job. So what kind of changed in you to kind of alter your career and end up enlisting in Times Square and being in Kuwait, changing into tan only a few months later? 
I don't think I'll be honest, not much had changed like in me. Like I, I always had like sort of like that. You know, I kind of knew I was going to do it, and I just needed that little push. Like I guess like the actually to be honest with you, the biggest change was that I, um, uh, I at the time I actually wasn't a U.S. citizen. I was actually not even a, a permanent resident. I was uh, on an H one B visa, so I couldn't enlist. Okay. Uh, I actually. Um, Got my green card, and uh, I actually went into the recruiting station the the same day my green card was approved. And I actually forgot about that. <laughs> but yeah, that's, a, that's an important part of the story, I guess. Well, yeah, that's. I mean, it sounds like your your passion w was great. Um, so then, so then, let's go back to where where I cut you off. So you're now in Germany, switching from greens to tan. Uh, where do you go next? Yeah, we. I remember we just. Um, we basically packed up our stuff, and I remember each soldier was allowed to bring uh, a rucksack and two duffel bags, but because I'd gotten there late, so what they'd done is they'd loaded one of their duffel bags, which they call their B bag, you get an A bag and a B bag. Mm -hmm. The soldiers that had already been there had shipped their duffel bags, their B bags to, to Kuwait already. I ended up sort of carrying two duffel bags, which was, you know, not exactly convenient, you know, a rucksack and two duffel bags. Right. Uh, but that's how far along they were, basically. They were, they had one foot out the door. So gotcha. just enough time to pack up, you know, get my gear issued, pack up and, and, and leave. And yeah, it was interesting too, like we were, we, um, we actually, traveled to Kuwait on a United Airlines charter jet because again you got to think at this time the economy had slowed down so again similar to what it was like um, it's going what's going on now so the commercial airlines had a lot of capacity so they were only happy to, to be transporting troops and I remember we we were on a United Airlines 747 um, so sort of by, by military standards traveling in style I remember when we, we landed in Kuwait, you know, the, the, the flight crew was very sweet. And, you know, we'd basically been just going from station to station, place to place, and we hadn't slept. So I remember as soon as they spun up the engine on that plane, though, everyone just passed out. So I guess we were, we were sort of easy to deal with. Yeah, you gotta, get, gotta get your sleep when you can, especially after that kind of a, a lead up to it, right? Exactly, exactly. And I guess, I guess it must have been odd for them too, though, to have, I don't know, 350 or 500 even uh, passengers get on all carrying weapons. I guess that's not normal. <laughs> okay, so then you end up landing in Kuwait, um, and then do you get deployed somewhere as a home base when you're for your for your first tour, or what? What was the how how did that all get all structured? Yes, yeah, so this was really different. So this was sort of in the invasion. So we went as a you know unit together so we basically you know left Germany as a unit uh, or, or we shipped our stuff ahead of time and we uh, you know I remember getting to Kuwait it was pitch black it was late at night uh, they scanned our IDs as we got off the plane and we got straight onto buses and the buses were interesting they had sort of blackout curtains on and they also had chicken mm -hmm. wire on the windows so they're like somebody couldn't throw a grenade in the window but you know we couldn't see anything again we were really tired and I remember the buses just sort of took off and drove off into the desert, and we couldn't see anything. And I remember we got to these camps, these tents out in the middle of the desert. You know, we were ushered straight in tents, and we went straight to bed. And I remember I, I couldn't see anything. I remember getting up in the morning because um, I had to use the bathroom and going out and going out just as the sun was coming up in the desert. Mm -hmm. And I got to say, when it, to see the desert for the first time is pretty cool. It's just, I mean, it's flat. You know, and it's sand as far as the eye can see, and it was, yeah, it was, it was cool. Yeah, that's that's pretty special. Um, 
And I know we, we have a limited amount of time here. So if, 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 is there, if there's one story, if there's something you think that was pretty interesting on, their, on your first tour there, um, anything you think that the audience would be interested to hear about, uh, did you ever get into a tight, tight, tight situation with your crew or have um, any close calls on the road? Um, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, I think the, the, this was sort of like the, the tour that kept on giving. Mm -hmm. So we deployed, this was sort of before, like, you know, we really knew what was going on. This was the early phases of the, the, um, the conflict in, in Iraq. So, you know, we left Germany, you know, hey, you know, and like our old timers, like the most they'd ever done was like if they'd done a Kosovo tour or something like yep. that. And like that, that was considered tough, right? Yep. And they were like, yeah, you know, we might be here for three months or it could be six months, but, you know, we'll be back by Thanksgiving. This was, you know, this was April. But they kept adding on the months. And finally they said, nope, you're going to be here for 12 months. Okay, so at least we had 12 months to, to, to lead up to. And we got to month 11 and a half. And we were actually sending our stuff home. We were ready to go back to Germany. And just, you know, things blew up. And just we went from like we had stuff actually being cleaned in Kuwait to go back to Germany to, hey, you know, go draw your weapons back out. And, you know, you guys are staying here another three months. So wow. we ended up having sort of 12 months that were sort of like a slow simmer, if you were to describe it, to having like the last three months that it was it was just like so it was on, you know, and we were, you know, we deployed from being in Baghdad, and, you know, kind of in staying in palaces that we basically, you know, taken from Saddam. And they were pretty ostentatious, I can tell you that much, to being back in just, you know, rarely showering and just patrolling constantly and just seeing a lot more action than we had like that those first 12 months. So it was like, it was a total of 15 months. The other sort of crazy thing that I remember is just when it was finally time to go home was we drove for 48 hours straight from Baghdad to Kuwait. Wow. And I don't know if I've ever been so tired <laughs> and so hot. And I remember... <laughs> crossing the border into Kuwait and when they told us we could take off our body armor and just mm -hmm. just feeling that, like this crazy burden had been taking off of me both literally and figuratively that's uh yeah I, I can imagine I mean well how, how hot was it probably at the time um I, I do remember that being once like our first summer there because we sort of straddled two summers uh for the deployment and there was one point where we were at a checkpoint in Baghdad and guys would suddenly spontaneously start bleeding from the nose and i remember there was like a an iraqi doctor was sort of coming through our checkpoint and he's he basically said you guys are literally boiling that's the problem <laughs> yeah it's, i bet it's hard to to say that you feel hot walking around chicago now with that kind of experience i will tell you what though the best part about that is i will never truly be hot again because i can always <laughs> relate to to those days and at least i'm not wearing body armor and a helmet yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so then this was the so the end of the the, the first deployment. Sounded like it got a little more exciting. Um, did that mean you were going to come back for an additional deployment at some point? Um, yeah. So I mean, I, I basically, uh, I'll be honest. I didn't like being in Germany because when you were in Germany, it rained all the time, and then uh, when you got deployed, you had to deploy like the what we have what the army used to keep in Germany. They don't do it anymore. Is they had what we call heavy units, so tanks and armored mm -hmm. personnel carriers and trucks and all that kind of stuff. So between me not liking to spend hours and hours in the motor pool and not liking to be rained on all the time, uh, and I can tell you that the one, my one sort of memory from Germany was when we were back. Uh, you know, my birthday is on December 8th, and we were on maneuvers in Germany. I remember I had to sleep 
the night of December 7th to December 8th on the roof of a Humvee to basically not drown in mud. And I remember waking up on the morning of my birthday and sort of jumping off the roof of the Humvee and sinking down to my knees in mud. Oh and like that's basically why I didn't want to stay there. But I'd heard that we had a um, uh, an airborne unit that was actually based in Italy, uh, mm-hmm. sort of, you know, paratroopers basically. And not only were they based in Italy, but they were 45 minutes from Venice. And I was thinking, wow, well, like, and this is what I joined the army to do is like do cool <laughs> things. And Hey, and on top of that, I get to live in Italy. I mean, I like wine, and I like pasta, and you know, love to go visit Venice. So I'd I'd put in paperwork to transfer there, um, and that came through. And uh, you know, after about six months of sort of reacclimatizing in Germany, um, I my, came time for me to move to Italy, and I did. Um, but you know, as I told you, with the getting to Germany, the the guys were in tans getting ready to go to Iraq. Well, when I got to Italy, the guys weren't even there. Uh, they were already in Afghanistan, so I was basically told, you know, get your stuff out of storage and get your tan uniforms out and go catch up. And so, so I did. Uh, I was in, I think, Italy for all of two weeks, long enough to to get an apartment, mm-hmm. um, because that was a small base. Um, and you know, if you were sergeant or above, which I was at that time, you had to you know find an apartment off base. So I got an apartment on a farm in Italy. Mm-hmm and um, pulled my stuff out and got ready to head out. Um, and just, I think, the one sort of memory I had before heading off to Afghanistan was my landlords, which were a charming Italian fa- farming couple, um, you know, sort of held a goodbye party for me. Uh, I could barely understand what they were saying, but I was starting to pick it up. And, and I sort of headed off, and, you know, I, I, I still keep in touch with, with uh, that, that couple. I actually spoke to them on Sunday. Oh, wow. um, so, uh, you know, just sort of like my second grandparents. Yeah. So then, okay, so you headed off from Italy, and then were you going back to a similar part of Afghanistan, or is this going to be to a completely new uh, village? So this was completely different, yeah. So I, I'd been in Iraq, and now this is my first Afghanistan tour, which I was excited Got about. Got it. Um, just because, you know, this was where you kind of like got to be like, you know, John Wayne, kind of like a cowboy, really like fight on foot. And, yeah. you know, this is the, the unit that I was coming to, the 173rd. 173rd Airborne Brigade is has sort of like a storied history. You know, I got I got to to Afghanistan. For those that understand sort of the military, I was actually trained as a mortarman, not as a rifleman. Uh, even those two are technically interchangeable. But when I got there, they were short riflemen, so they were looking for volunteers to transfer, which I was happy to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took a rifle team, and I think on my first patrol was quite uneventful, and I think it was designed to be that way, just to kind of get me acclimatized. And my second patrol was uh, right out of a movie. I mean, it was just, I mean, bullets pinging, flying all overhead. Uh, basically, we spent um, a day and a half just fighting. <laughs> and, no sleep? Uh, I think there was so much adrenaline. I think there might have been like a, you know, a, a lull at night where we could have maybe gotten some sleep, but we, we didn't. But it was, it was just like everything you sort of imagine from like, you know, name your movie. Uh, when it came to a, a sort of uh, a firefight. Oh, my gosh. And um, I hate to even ask the question, but did you ever get hit in any of these firefights or have any sort of injuries of any sort? Um, so so I made it uh, through that one without anything more than a sort of a sprained ankle. My Actually, one of my soldiers that um, you know was assigned to me in this firefight was hit twice, once in the helmet and once uh, through the chest. Uh, which he and he walked away from both those injuries. Believe it or not, uh, wow. they, yeah, they just sort of passed through his body without hitting any organs, which is unbelievable. Um, yeah, I, you know, I was I was there. Um, so I, 
arrived about a six weeks or maybe even two months late after the, the unit had already been in action. Um, served with my company for six weeks and we went in, we were been assigned as the quick reaction force for the, I think the whole sector. And we went in to basically relieve a special forces unit that was in heavy contact and we were fighting our way into this village and um, yeah, it was, I became a casualty. I was wounded, I was shot um, through the hand and knee uh, while I was trying to clear a building. And um, that's sort of putting a quick end to my, my tour in Afghanistan. Wow. And uh, were you able to be, like, airlifted out of there? Or how were they able to get you help? Yeah, they sort of, they, they dragged, uh, I was actually going down into a, a cellar to, to retrieve um, my squad leader who's, who's had, he'd been killed. So I was trying to recover his body. And when I was shot, I was able to sort of backpedal and pull myself out. And I remember just being sort of propped up against a tree and, um, you know, like, Soldiers were just, you know, that that you know, my friends were sort of treating me, and then finally we had a physician's assistant with us as well, who, who, who finally gave me some treatment. The funny story about this physician's assistant is he'd been in Germany with me and, and transferred as well, so we had a we had a prior history, and we still keep in touch. Um, yeah, I was met, in fact, by helicopter. Um, you know, it's a pretty grim affair. Like if if I was to find one sort of element of humor in it, uh, I remember when uh, you know I basically landed at what. It looked like a MASH hospital, and it looked sort of just like the opening scene of MASH, where yeah, like you yeah. know they rush out to the helicopter and they're to get the wounded, and um, and it was very early in the morning, so people were in various states of dress and undress, and I remember they went to pick me up, and um, you know we we hadn't had that many casualties yet at that point, so the, for the most part, I think this unit was treating local people, um, running clinics and all that, and I think they weren't used to carrying Americans, um, you know, they were much. <laughs> We're much sort of stockier, especially soldiers, you know, and on top of that, I had all my gear on me, and I remember just one of the orderlies was just like, can you give me a hand? These Americans are much heavier than the locals. Uh, uh, so. <laughs> yeah, give me a little chuck on the situation, huh? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so then you end up at this MASH hospital, um, and then do you recover there? Is this is this the end of your your tour do you go back after a few amount of time what, what what's next after this yeah so they 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 take me from mash hospital where i was triaged uh they were more more casualties were coming in so they basically sent me to the big hospital so that they could deal with any other incoming casualties another one of my soldiers had been wounded a little bit after me and so i sort of linked up with him again mm -hmm. in um in kandahar and we were both uh medevac by by air to germany and i remember we were in this big sort of smelly um, airplane, you know, and you can sort of smell the engine and all the oil and the fuel. I remember landing in Germany um, where we have a big hospital and like the, they dropped the, the tail, the ramp, and like all, it was July and like the, this sort of fresh German pine smelling air just floods the airplane. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember that, that, that just being a pretty um, vivid memory and just... Yeah, I was in the hospital there in Germany for a week, and then um, they sent a van to come pick me up from Italy and bring me back to Italy. Another sort of amazing memory is sort of being on medication and being driven through the German and Italian Alps in July, which is fabulously beautiful. I mean, just the greenest thing you've ever seen. And yeah, I, I got back to base in Italy. Um, I had somebody take me back to my apartment, and they, this farming couple I was telling you about earlier, they were about to sit down to Sunday dinner. And, you know, I 
hopped out of a van in, you know, crutches and with my arm all bandaged up. And you know, these people know me all of two weeks, and I remember them just rushing out, throwing their arms around me. I think somebody was kicked off out of their place at the dinner table, and so they could make room for me. And somebody poured a big overflowing glass of wine, and, you know, I sat down and had a great meal with them. And, you know, that's why I still stay in touch with them. That's where they sort of like my second grandparents. Uh, but yeah, I was so I was uh, I recovered and actually went back after three months, um, and finished out the tour with with uh, my unit, which was which was you know at first I wasn't excited about it at first, but in, in retrospect it was sort of good. It was like sort of gave me closure. Mm-hmm. Um, came back, uh, did a year of train up because we knew we were going right back to Afghanistan, and yeah, I think. 13, 14 months later, I was back in Afghanistan in a different part of the country. So the first tour, I'd been in the south, and the second tour, we were in the northeast. So basically, um, in the area that sort of borders Pakistan, like the the foothills of the Hindu Kush, really, really rough territory uh, terrain. Not that the terrain in the south was pleasant either, uh, but this was this was just, I mean, you're looking at, you know, sheer cliffs, <laughs> basically, at all times. Wow. And so, so you're in a completely new part of the country. Did that pose any new challenges to you? Um, I mean, it was just it, it, there was some getting used to. Um, and on, if I was to pull another bit of humor out of it, is the unit that we replaced um, had basically arrived as we were leaving the last time. And I remember joking with them, it's like, you know, we should just leave our duffel bags here and we'll just sort of swap out every other year. <laughs> um, and it, it was sort of at that point where, you know, you, and if, if you remember, I, I said I was worried about missing the war. Well, at this point, like, it was really hitting home that, yeah, that, that should never have been a concern. Because, um, you know, I think I was now three years in the Army with two and a half years deployed. Um, but, yeah, it was, it is, so this was a tour we went in knowing that it would be a... Um, a 15-month tour, so there was no sort of like, hey, six months, three months, 12 months, whatever. It's like we knew this was going to be 15 months. So we knew going in that it was going to be a marathon. And we were going into a really rough part of the country. Not Again, not that the South was a pleasant part either, but this really took the cake. And you know, it ended up being, I think maybe even to this day, one of the sort of like the bloodiest um, uh, tours uh, that, that we sort of had in the global war. I, I remember at one point, maybe six or eight months in, um, when we'd taken a bunch of casualties. Uh, my, my commander, I was I was his driver and, and radio operator, turning to me and saying, uh, Eric, do you know that we are officially in the most dangerous place on earth to be an American soldier? Um, and I was like, wow. Um, but it was true. So we, 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 were, we were there for a good you know, 15 months fighting probably every step of the way. Um, my unit ended up taking, I think, 50 of the 150 men assigned to, to my company. Half of them got Purple Hearts, two Medal of Honor recipients. Um, you know, the sort of the tragic part of this tour was that we made it to 14 and a half months of our 15 months, and we were engaged in what, you know, has become one of the biggest battles of, of that war. Really? Uh, where we, you know, we had, you know, I, we had, I think, 45 Americans um, at this allow post that, that the Taliban tried to overrun, and we had uh, nine men killed, uh, just two weeks short of going home, and it was just, um, you know, pretty tough. I mean, just a, just a rough thing to go through, especially since we were so close to going home. Um, but you know, like a, a lot of great things. I mean, um, you know, people did great things that day. So, and uh, you know, one of our Medal of Honor recipients earned his his Medal of Honor that day, and you know, there's plenty of other heroic acts as well. Well, and then so that was right at the the end of the 15 months. Uh, yes. Pretty, right. Yep. 
Yep. So that was that was that was tough. It was tough to do that, come back, and then you know I remember seeing, you know, um, particularly that platoon that that had had you know taken most of those casualties, like standing in, you know, formation in Italy, and like you know they're decimated. You know, there were you yeah. know, it was like ten of them where they're supposed to be, forty. That uh, that's absolutely tragic. Um, were, 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 did, were this, did this finish your final tour, or did you have additional action after this fifteen months? Uh, that was pretty much it. We after that we um, we had a new unit come in to replace us, and we sort of trained them up. Um, you know, they, I think they were there was a lot of anxiety on their part to mm-hmm. have to come in and you know take over what we were were giving them. Yeah. Um, so you know that was that was a that was sort of like a nerve wracking two weeks when we were sort of doing that handoff, and then we were back in Italy. And you know, at that point, I basically said to myself, you know, it's time to get out. I'd I'd, I'd been in close to six years, and I spent four and a half years of six years on deployment. So again, like, you know, uh, I really didn't need to be worried about missing the war. And I sort of had said to myself at that point, if I, if I don't get out now, like the army's going to keep sending me back until I don't come back. <laughs> so, and, and I, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I didn't join to be, you know, a career soldier. I, I joined to, you know, to, you know, do something, um, you know, like that I definitely had an, an inkling, you know, a desire to do, you know, um, desire to, to experience, um, I think, military life and also have, perform service. So I feel like, I've, but then I felt like I'd gotten it, gotten that done. So I was, uh, I knew I was wanted to go to business school uh, and, you know, live a life of, as a civilian. Uh, mm-hmm. While I was actually out processing from the Army, though, one of the things they make you do is talk to the reserve component re- recruiter, and I had no, had had no intention of joining the reserves or the National Guard, but you know, they offered me ten thousand dollars to <laughs> to sign up, and they said I wouldn't be deployed, um, and I could pick my units. So I did. I did sign up for the National Guard, and that was actually ended up being you know a great decision because it was sort of another way to sort of um, sort of reintegrate into society while still keeping half a foot in, and you know I didn't feel like I was missing anything. So I did that for the the two years that I was in grad. Graduate school. I actually was also in the National Guard. Okay, so then you went to graduate school, and is that what brought you to KPMG? It is, yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, I left the army. I um, was taking the GMAT and applying to schools and all that. And um, you know, as I told you, I'd, I'd sort of left. You know, I'd been in New York for a long time, so I think I definitely had an East Coast sort of bias. But you know, as I was taking the the GMAT, I was starting to get like the um, you know solicitations from various schools, and one of them that one of the ones that, that reached out to me was Notre Dame, and I was like, that's in South Bend. I don't, I've never been to the Midwest, uh, and I didn't really you know think much of like like the packet they sent me. We just really didn't you know stir anything in me, so I just I remember throwing it away, and then um, they sent me another one that was sort of targeted at veterans. Uh, and like this one sort of spurred my interest, and I was like, "Huh, okay, this is interesting." And uh, I was like, "You know, I've written all these these um, essays. I can just like tailor one to you know change it a bit." And uh, so I did. I submitted it, and they they re- they I think they got back to me maybe the day after or something like that. And I was like, "Hey, do you want to come visit South Bend?" And I was like, "No, I'm not going to visit South Bend." Um, and they were like, "Oh, okay." And I think maybe a day or two later, I said, well, our director of admissions is going to be in Baltimore. And I, I was staying in Washington, D.C. with my parents at the time. And he's like, do you want to go visit? You want to go meet up with him? He's at a conference. So I was like, I, I, was like, I guess I can get on a train to Baltimore. So I did. Uh, and that guy, uh, Brian Lohr was his name. He sold me, like, in 30 minutes. I, don't, I can't even remember what he did, <laughs> to be honest with you. Maybe that's why he's such a good salesman. But uh, I think, um, yeah, six weeks later, I was at Notre Dame. Um, and uh, the the story I sort of tell was like 
two weeks before I was supposed to start at Notre Dame, I actually had annual training with my guard unit. Mm-hmm. And again, I'd never been to the Midwest. And we were supposed to go to Fort McCoy in Wisconsin for our um, our training. Uh, but again, I was in a National Guard airborne and paratrooper unit, so we weren't going to drive there or fly there. We were going to fly there and jump in. So the story I like to tell is the first time I ever set foot in the Midwest was um, by hel- by parachute. So I literally parachuted into Wisconsin. Uh, <laughs> two weeks later, I was back uh, at orientation at Notre Dame. Um, I met my wife day one of orientation um, at Notre Dame. Uh, she's a triple domer, so this, she was wow. starting her third degree at Notre Dame, so there's a fanatic for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, yeah, uh, yeah, I uh, Kate was recruited by KPMG, um, started at, in Chicago, uh, was in also in the Milwaukee office for a year as well, mm-hmm. uh, and then but have been basically in the Chicago office yeah, since 2010, 11, 2011, yeah. Nice. And uh, yeah, you're you're also talking to a fellow Notre, Notre Dame grad, so uh, you're gonna have to be careful with that fanatic talk around here. Hey, go Irish, right? <laughs> I'm sure we got plenty of people on the on the podcast who are you know happy when Notre Dame loses. So we'll just uh, we'll we'll keep Notre Dame out of this as much as we can. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so then you started KBMG in 2010. Um, have you been working in the same group since then, or what's your career path been looking like? Yeah, I guess it's been been non-traditional. Um, so I started out in um, advisory, and I think it actually was called advisory, but back in the day, um, it, what I joined, which I think now it's called consulting, was back then called performance and technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, we, we love to, to reorganize and uh, uh, change the taxonomy. So I started out in people and change in performance and technology. Um, very early on, I was at, out at Chrysler, which at the time was a very big client. It was a really, really interesting client to start out with. Um, so mm-hmm. they were just coming out of bankruptcy. Uh, we had, I think we just sort of uh, rotated out of the audit. And so there was tons of advisory work to be done there. So uh, just a really, really interesting time. I was there for a long time, 10, 10 almost 11 months. Um, and I, I think they, I sort of had to leave because I was sort of coming up on, um, you know, some negative tax implications for the firm. So... Um, I had a number of like really interesting clients. What I always tell folks when you know I'm doing recruiting for KPMG or, or, or speaking is just um, you know the the opportunity that I had from the point of view of uh, you know I've to work within like Fortune 500, Global 500 organizations. Um, the one thing that I'd always wanted to do with the firm was do something global, and that's sort of challenging just because of the nature of how you know we're structured as you know a, you know network of independent member firms. Mm-hmm. But there was an opportunity in advisory to sort of work with um, sort of rolling out our initiatives uh, with KGS. So uh, I joined what we called um, the KGS Demand Enablement Team. Okay. So basically, the idea is just to, to increase penetration throughout our, our service groups. Uh, so you know, made a number of trips out to KGS. Um, I still you know have huge contacts over there. In fact, I you know deal with folks from with KGS daily. Still, um, you know, there's some of the responsibilities that I picked up uh, back then have sort of not left me, um, which I think is great because I because I love uh, working with with our coworkers out there at uh, KGS. And you know, right now they're doing a fantastic job, just sort of reacting to you know what's going on with the 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 coronavirus crisis and you know they've all switched to work from home and like right now like they're under complete lockdown but I'm you know you know I sent an email to somebody over there like at um, noon our time and I got a response five minutes later and I was like what are you doing up it's like two in the morning over there but like those guys are just you know they're just rocking and rolling 
Yeah, it's incredible stuff. Um, and then I also heard that you were involved with an onshore delivery center. Is that something? I heard that's something new you're working on. Do you want to tell talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I can tell you guys a little bit. So it's not, you know, we haven't fully, you know, made an official announcement, but it's something very exciting. So this is meant to be a complement to K KGS. So we're definitely not trying to replace KGS, mm -hmm. but we realize that there's a number of our clients that, you know, aren't able to leverage KGS just because they've got, you know, various prohibitions or they they, they work within regulated areas where, like, the, they've got sensitive information that can't go overseas mm -hmm. or they're the federal government. Um, so this is, uh, you know, KPMG's attempt at sort of addressing that that need. So we're we're building a center that's going to be located in Lake Nona, so very close to Lake House, not at Lake House, but very close to it. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're just we're just sort of getting to the the stage of of starting to staff it up. Um, you know, we uh, I think there's less than 20 people that work there right now, um, but we've got great hopes. Um, you know, the the big challenge that we dealt with recently was the fact that. We started onboarding our first sort of class of new hires on uh, March 7th, so they were in the office for all yeah. of six days uh, when we had to send them home, but they've been doing a fantastic job um, of just sort of reacting um, and, and getting up to speed, just, just working virtually. Um, we're actually onboarding four more um, that are going to do all their onboarding virtually, so that'll be a challenge, but um, I've been in touch with the... Um, national onboarding team and they've already put 100 folks through this program of you know where they just mail folks their laptops and just get them started um, virtually so it'll be it'll be interesting so I think we'll have a lot of good stories to tell when we uh, finally come out of this and uh, so who would be the main user of this um, onshore delivery center and like what exactly what kind of work are you envisioning them assisting with um, I mean I think the sky's the limit right yep. now we have pilots for spectrum and risk assurance. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, Spectrum is putting some of their managed services in, and uh, for risk assurance, what they're focusing on is something they call testing and documentation. So we're going to be doing like controls testing work for for uh, internal audit and tech tech assurance clients that you know that have you know prohibitions against sending work offshore. Well, that's great. Um, yeah, that's awesome. And well, it sounds like uh, sounds like things are moving really in the right direction out there. Uh, do you guys have a, a trendy name for the delivery center yet? Yeah, we have a very trendy name. So uh, it's called KPMG Boost Performance Center. Nice. Uh, and the 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 idea is that you know we were sort of throwing around names like you know the I think the when, when this was just in the project phase we were calling it the onshore delivery center. But the the one thing that you know you got to sometimes step out of your role as a consultant because uh, we've got a lot of sort of like you know jargon that makes sense to us. But I, th I think to non-consultants doesn't. So, you know, what we realized was that when people hear delivery center, they think, you know, what are you working for UPS or FedEx or something like that? So that's why we decided to go with the word performance center instead. And then the name KPMG Boost actually came from a group of summer interns that we had last summer. So I did a little bit of mini pilot in the Chicago office. So anybody that was on the 57th floor and saw the really large conference room sort of occupied by lots of interns, that was me running a pilot with them. And uh, you know, they came, you know, we, I didn't really have a real name for the center yet, and they sort of on their own came came together, and we're just like, well, how about KPMG Boost, like, you know, to boost your performance, and I was like, huh, it's got a pretty good ring to it, so we ran it awesome. through leadership, and they liked it, and, you know, here we are. Well, that's great. Um, well, Eric, I really appreciate your time, uh, especially kind of talking about your, your story and your background. Uh, before I let you go, kind of got one last question for you. So you've got quite a unique background. Um, so how do you use that background 
to serve our clients and help perform at a high level? And especially, how does it tie back to our values of integrity, courage, excellence, to, and together for better? Um, I, I, like, I think the one thing that I sort of took away from military service was sort of the idea of selfless service. So, you know, I think one thing, you know, as a, as a leader in the military that they are, are always sort of instill in you is just to, to put put your soldiers in front of you and put to put their needs first. So, for example, like, you know, make sure that they eat before you eat. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously we don't live under, like, those kinds of extreme circumstances. But I think, you know, one thing that, you know, I find to be really important, and especially now that, you know, I'm onboarding, like, this sort of new, whole new class of of employees that we have, you know, in at KPMG Boost is just, like, you know, to, to sort of keep their needs in mind and, like, the needs of your people, um, you know, whether you're a consultant in the field or you're working in, in um, you know, in operations, is, you know, I think it always works well for me is just to make sure that the people that are working for you are taken care of because they'll take care of you, you know, once they understand that. So I think that's important and that also, you know, translate to our relationships with our clients as well, right, is, is if, mm -hmm. if, you know, they see that kind of behavior. And I think that's something that's that, that I think is really starting to show right now, like with the crisis that we're currently in, right, is just I feel like the, the firm has done a great job in just you know, really putting people first. And, you know, I can only imagine that, you know, that filters down to the clients, you know, that, that, that this is the kind of organization you want. Um, you know, being a trusted advisor is somebody that, you know, looks out for their people, right, because they – should look at for you as a client as well. So I think that's one thing. Um, you know, on a lighter note, like one thing that that has sort of helped me, you know, get through like the stress of, um, you know, the days that are stressful when, when you're in consulting is just, um, you know, I, I'm not, so as I mentioned before, I'm not carrying like 100 pounds of gear or body armor and no one's shooting at me. So like I, I it helped me put things in perspective. Um, so no day is that bad. Yeah, I guess that, that perspective is really valuable, and um, I feel like your, your background is really kind of is quite inspiring for, for, for performance in the future. Um, so uh, kind of what you've mentioned a couple couple times throughout this podcast was on a lighter note and, and find kind of the, the, the funny side of things. So before I let you go, I'm going to ask you the lightning round questions, a few quick questions, first thing that comes to mind, and just uh, end it on kind of a light note. Sound good? Sure. Sounds great. All right. Uh, one, ketchup or mustard on hot dogs? Both. Both. Hot dogs or cheeseburgers? Oof. I'm going to say both. Both. Oh, jeez. All right. Uh, all right. What do you drink in the morning? Coffee. Black. No sugar. Black coffee. Any phobias? I hate snakes, but I wouldn't call it a phobia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and rain or snow? Snow for sure. Oh, yeah. I'm from Buffalo. Snow all the way, Eric. I'm with you. All right. One, la one last one. Uh, once, once people know that you have a podcast, who's the most likely person in the office to listen to your show? Huh. That's a good question. Ron Seymour. All right, Ron. Perfect. Now, pressure's on for him to come listen and spread the word. Right. <laughs> oh, well, I'd uh, just like to say thanks again, Eric. I really appreciate you opening up and telling about your background and your extremely interesting story. And uh, sharing about the KPMG Boost Performance Center, we just, we're just really excited and can't wait to hear what's next. Oh, great. Can't wait to tell you guys more about it. All right. Thanks again, Eric. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Shy Chat Podcast. For more information on the KPMG Veterans Network, the KPMG Boost Performance Center, 
or anything else you heard on the show, please contact Eric Haas at E-A-A-S-S at KPMG.com. If you like what you heard, spread the word. And if you or someone you know has a great story that you think we should hear about, please contact Aaron Bailey at ebailey at kpmg.com or myself at prainholt at kpmg.com.